listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome, 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 and Friday afternoon. It looks like the end of days out there, dark, dingy, but that is not the worst because I can tell you what, folks. Storms are coming. That is true. A storm is on the way. Later on in the program, Anthony Fornell with more details on what you can expect this weekend. The weekend is upon us, and perhaps a time to reflect, a time to spend time with family and to think about the things that you have and to think about the families in this country that are mourning, that are in grief. The Prime Minister in Toronto today meeting with families who lost loved ones in the Ukrainian airliner crash. That will be private meetings today in Toronto with Justin Trudeau. But we have some developments, and we're going to go through that today. And I also want to kind of go through that extraordinary press conference yesterday by the Prime Minister in Ottawa, the press uh, in the press gallery, and try and sort of look at what he said and what he couldn't say, and what does it mean? And, and I think you'll take away from that some conclusions about Canada's place in the world, and I wonder what you think about how the Prime Minister handled that situation. That is all coming up. I want to start, though, with the key announcement from that press conference. Here is the Prime Minister talking about the intelligence that Canada has gathered. We have intelligence from multiple sources, including our allies and our own intelligence. The evidence indicates that the plane was shot down by an Iranian surface-to-air missile. This may well have been unintentional. That is the key headline from the press conference yesterday and reverberated around the world, not not just across Canada, but around the world, as this accusation that the Prime Minister has that we have evidence. We have evidence that is strong enough that he can make that kind of statement and say that this is definitively what happened. Here is David Aiken of Global News trying to get some clarity from the Prime Minister on the qualifiers that were in that statement. Can you be as definitive as you can be, knowing what you know, knowing what you can't share with us, about the intentionality of this apparent missile strike? I think that is one of the reasons why it is so important to have a full and credible investigation. Uh, Before we get into definitive conclusions, as you say, we need to ensure that we have uh, all the facts gathered. Uh, The intelligence and evidence right now uh, suggests uh, very clearly uh, a... a, uh, possible uh, and probable uh, cause for the crash, uh, but it is all the more necessary, therefore, to gather all the evidence to have a complete picture of what happened. That is the Prime Minister speaking yesterday, and you heard even more qualifiers within that. Suggests. The evidence suggests. Most likely. All of these qualifiers, and and it, it seemed, I don't know if it seemed this way to you, but certainly as I watched this unfold, it seemed so interesting to me that the Prime Minister is walking such a fine line here. Here he is saying to the nation, we have evidence that says an Iranian surface-to-air missile brought down this airliner, taking all of these Canadian lives. And then yet, in the very questions afterwards, he then seems to qualify it even more. Iran this morning is completely denying what the Prime Minister is asserting. Here is Redmond Shannon with the Iranian response. 
The head of Iran's Civil Aviation Authority says no, there were no missiles, no missiles were fired, and this is all wrong. He says, again repeating Iran's line, that simply there was a fire on the aircraft as it hit the ground, and he says a full investigation is needed in order to find out why there was a fire on the aircraft. That is Redmond Shannon from Global News reporting. Now, Iran has accused Western governments of quote-unquote psychological warfare in claiming that the Boeing jet that crashed near Tehran was brought down by a missile. Quote, if they are certain and have the courage, they should share any finding that has scientific and technical backing, unquote, said the head of Iran's civil aviation organization. So where is the evidence? The Prime Minister was asked repeatedly, will he share the evidence that he has, the evidence that has brought him to the conclusion that a missile brought down that plane? The Prime Minister said no, he would not share it. And then, this question, if it turns out that the thing you just told the world happens to be true, what is it that Canada will do about it? Anything in the range of responses would need to start from uh, a clear understanding and a credible confirmation of what actually happened, and that is why a proper and full investigation is going to be so important. A credible confirmation of what happened? You just told the world what happened. This is such a difficult line for the Prime Minister here, and I think you have to keep in mind what country we're talking about here. This is Canada. We are not a world power. We are a mid-power, perhaps lower mid. So in this case, we can't stand up there and thump our chests and bang the table and say, this happened and we will do such and such without a long list of allies on our side. What is it that the Americans are saying? Well, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo held a news conference this morning saying that the United States will await the results of an investigation before taking, quote, unquote, appropriate action. But here's what Pompeo says about what he believes brought down that airliner. We do believe that it's likely that that plane was shot down by an Iranian missile. Uh, we are, we're going to let... Uh, the investigation play out before we make a final determination. It's important that we get to the bottom of it. Uh, I've been on the phone. I was on the phone with President Zelensky uh, just before I came here. I was on the phone with my Canadian counterpart. Uh, they were working to get their resources on the ground to conduct that thorough investigation. We'll learn more about what happened to that aircraft. Uh, and when we get the results of that investigation, I am confident we, we and the world will take appropriate actions in response. So everything now hinges on a thorough and complete and independent investigation. However, all of the indications from Iran are that that simply will not be allowed to take place. We have seen pictures of bulldozers at the crash site already. Whether or not the black box will truly be shared, that is a question. And you heard the response from Iran that this is psychological warfare targeting Iran to suggest that that airliner was brought down by a missile. But what about the video? By now, you likely have seen it. It has been confirmed by the New York Times. Here's Redmond Shannon with more about that video. There is the video that was published by the New York Times and investigative website Bellingcat, which is a cell phone video taken from the ground in Tehran, which appears to show what could be a missile in the sky and then an explosion and then what could have been the ball of flame 
in, and on that aircraft as it hurtled toward the ground. Those websites and the New York Times say all the evidence stacks up and what they can see from that video that it appears to show something hit an aircraft in the sky at that exact moment. That is Redmond Shannon talking about that video and if you've seen it, it's very fascinating to see the science behind what is the confirmation from the New York Times and I should add we have not at Global News independently confirmed that that video is what it purports to be but basically what the Times and other scientists were able to do is they were to look at where the light was and it seems to show a missile streaking in the sky and then an explosion and that sense of uh, or, or the timing in terms of taking in the speed of light and where the impact was and how that calibrates to the last known position of the aircraft. All of that leading the New York Times to conclude that that video is authentic. Here is a question for the Prime Minister then about blame and about who is to blame here. And this is a pointed question, and I want to play this for you because it wasn't the only time the Prime Minister was asked this same question different ways by different reporters. Here's one of his responses about whether or not he believes that the United States bears any responsibility for the downing of the aircraft. Do you think that the United States is at least partially responsible for this tragedy? I think it is uh, too soon to be drawing conclusions or assigning blame or responsibility in whatever proportions. Right now our focus is on supporting uh, the families that are grieving right across the country and providing what answers we can uh, in a preliminary way, uh, but recognizing that there is going to need to be a full and credible investigation into what exactly happened before we draw any conclusions. And again, a real non-answer there from the Prime Minister. And I will note that there were a number of commentators that pointed out that after a number of different journalists asked that same question in different ways, people are like, well, what a, this is ridiculous. This is outrageous. Part of the role of journalists and part of the thing that you do in those press conferences is you just simply ask the same question five different ways. It is, it is just it's part of the job. It is part of the way that you do the job because often the same question from different angles and from different tacks will get you an answer that is more revealing. That, you know, perhaps the first three times it'll be message track and the fourth time you'll get somewhat closer to the truth. And finally, our last clip here, is this an act of war? Listen to the Prime Minister here as he circles back to that fine line between saying what actually happened and assigning any kind of blame. We got uh, confirmation over the course of last night and this morning uh, on uh, this uh, particular set of conclusions that I've shared today. Uh, but obviously there is uh, much more work to be done, much more uh, data to be analyzed, and that's why uh, the um, credible investigation is so important. That is Justin Trudeau speaking at the press gallery in Ottawa yesterday. The Prime Minister in Toronto today for private meetings with families of the victim.
Welcome back to the program. Ontario's elementary school teachers say they will launch a series of rotating strikes beginning on January the 20th if there's no significant process at the contract talks with the government. This will follow an escalation of work to rule, which is set to begin on Monday from the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. The union saying that the moves are necessary because the province has not made concessions at the bargaining table. To talk more about this, I'm pleased to welcome back to the program Sam Hammond, who is the president of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. Hi, Sam. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me on. Why escalate? You are still talking, are you not? Uh, yeah, we uh, well, we hope that we we don't have any additional dates set as of today. Uh, we hope that those dates can be set ASAP. Um, but uh, we have we spent four months at the bargaining table from late August till the end of December, and during that time, there's been absolutely no movement or meaningful conversation or negotiations at the table on behalf of the government. Uh, we feel that we you know there are no options left to us except for what we're doing now to try and get the attention of this government. I'll tell you a personal story, Sam, and I think it reflects what a lot of people are going through in the province. I have a son in grade six, and, you know, he looks forward, has looked forward to for years now, the annual trip for grade six, which they all go off to Monoclus for a couple of nights, and he's going to be devastated that he can't go. How do I explain to him that his teachers are taking away his ability to go on something he's looked forward to for so many years? Well, we, we uh, as I said, Alan, uh, you know, we have been uh, you know, cautious in terms of moving to where we are now. We were at the same place back probably the end of October, and we decided, no, we weren't going to escalate things, uh, that we were going to stay at that table and bargain up until the end of December. But based on what the, the government representative said to us at the table, that he has no mandate or no authority to bargain the issues that we have on the table, we feel like there are no options. We absolutely understand. We don't make these decisions lightly, and we absolutely understand uh, the effect that it has on uh, students and parents, but we really feel like in addition to what we're bargaining at the table, we're concerned about the short and long-term effects of the cuts that this government is making on publicly funded education, and we don't want to, uh, you know, uh, uh, just stand by and allow it to happen, and we need to do, we feel we need to do everything we can uh, to protect students, our members, and publicly funded education. Now, now Sam, you, you raise here what you believe or what you, you assert is the motivation for escalating job action, which is that you are trying to protect the system and you're trying to protect public education, whereas on the other side, the education minister says, at the end of the day, this is about money and this is about unions trying to protect their own membership. How do you respond? Well, a couple of things. First thing, uh, it is about money when we're talking about investments in publicly funded education, when we're talking about this government putting money on the table to hire additional special education teachers, to hire additional uh, educational workers in this province. But when he talks about compensation, I'll be clear, we have a cost of living increase on the table. That might be 1.8, 1 1.9, 2%, whatever that is. Uh, and we make no apologies for that, given that our members live in society that's affected by rate of inflation. But we have spent, Alan, 
uh, in four months, probably 30 minutes at the table talking about compensation. Uh, and it is not uh, uh, the big issue at the table uh, based on the amount of time we've talked about it. When you're talking about rotate, rotating strikes, can you give me some more details what you're talking about? Are you, are you trying to, are you planning to sort of mimic what OSSTF did, pick various boards and do one-day rotating strikes? Well, you know, all at this point, each of the boards in the province would be uh, affected by it. But in terms of what that's actually going to look like, uh, we're going to give uh, the public advance notice, and you know, a minimum of five days. We hope we uh, provide more, uh, but I'm just not prepared to talk about the details of that until we do it. So you're saying it, it may be province-wide? Uh, no, they are rotating strikes. Yeah, but are you going to do a rotating strike in terms of a province-wide one-day strike, or are you going to pick and choose various boards the way OSDF has? I appreciate what you're asking, but we're going to wait until we release that publicly in terms of the details. And what do you consider to be, you've said that if there is considerable progress, you will call off these planned rotating strikes. What does considerable progress mean? Well, we're actually, you know, if the if the government is actually coming to the comes back to the table, and their representatives actually talk about the issues that are on the table, how we can work together to uh, resolve those issues, what's important uh, to students and our members and their learning experience, etc., uh, then we'll see that, you know, in a, in a big way progress because they're actually engaging in those conversations. But we're hoping and we're asking for and have said that we would like to see a deal by January the 17th, which is a week from today. Sam Hammond is the president of ETFO. Thank you so much for being on the program. No, thank you, Alan. My pleasure. Well, when it comes to, you know, getting through your education, if you ever do get through your education, considering all the problems and all the labor disruption we have in this province, what do you do for a job? Well, a message from Queen's Park this week aimed at young people right across this province. If you are considering your career options, what about a skilled trade? The Ford government today announcing that it will spend $4 million on an ad campaign with that very message. But how will the conservatives actually make it easier for people to join the trades? I spoke this week with Minister Monty McNaughton about what the government is planning. Monty McNaughton, thanks for being here. Thanks, Alan, for having me on today. Your government has made it a priority to deal with skilled trades and to modernize that, and I know you've been talking to stakeholders. What are you hearing from various positions saying what they want from you? Well, certainly we have a challenge uh, in Ontario. Every single day uh, in the province of Ontario, we have 200,000 jobs that are going uh, unfilled. 13,000 of those, for example, are in the construction uh, industry, skilled trades in that sector of the economy. Uh, So this is an issue, I think, that brings everyone together. Uh, Everyone in Ontario wants to solve uh, the skilled trade shortage. Well, but there are many different opinions on how you deal with that. Maybe we'll get to that in a moment. But first, I want to play a bit of an advertisement that you've announced this week that you say this is going to try and reduce the stigma about skilled trades. Here's part of that ad. Make more than a living. Be proud of what you do. Enter the trades. Where you can be proud of what you give. Proud of what you know. So, Minister, is expending resources on an ad campaign like this a good idea? 
Absolutely. Um, you talk to uh, parents out there, you talk to uh, people that are in the trades, uh, there's certainly been a stigma uh, around the trades. We want uh, people to know that they can be proud of those careers in the skilled trades. The opportunities are endless. Uh, an elevator mechanic uh, in a skilled trade on average makes $108,000 per year. These are great jobs. There's over 100 skilled trades to choose from. Uh, we need to spread the message and that stigma in Ontario when it comes to the skilled trades. How much are you spending on the ad campaign? Uh, about $4 million. Uh, yeah, every government says that they're supportive of skilled trades. The question is, is how do you go about actually facilitating a pathway into them? So what is the government going to do? Well, this is my mission, our government's mission uh, for 2020. We have to end the stigma around the skilled trades, uh, show people that... Uh, but stigma is not going to get it done. Right. This is uh, number one, uh, do this marketing campaign, advertising campaign. Secondly, uh, we have to simplify the apprenticeship system. And thirdly, we need to encourage businesses to bring on uh, apprentices. Uh, in Ontario, only 6% of businesses are taking on apprentices. Across the nation, it's about 19%. Your government has moved to wind down the College of Trades, but at this point you haven't really got an, an off-road map or, or anything that's going to replace it. What will replace it? Well, uh, we are working uh, on this. I want to make sure uh, I get this right. I've been uh, on the file now uh, since October. I was Minister of Labor for the first uh, number of months uh, after June and then became uh, Minister of Labor Training and Skills Development uh, in October. I've reached out uh, to hundreds of uh, stakeholders uh, on this issue. We're going to begin by uh, this advertising campaign, simplifying the system, getting businesses to take on apprentices. Uh, but this is a, a big undertaking. Uh, one of the things we um, are also doing as a government is ensuring that skilled trades is introduced into the curriculum as early as kindergarten. What kind of timeline are you looking at then for actually substantive changes and I'm assuming you're talking legislation? Well look uh, we are uh, going to be putting shovels in the ground uh, fairly soon when it comes to two of the largest infrastructure projects uh, in Ontario history, the subway expansion uh, as well as the Go Rail uh, expansion. But we also have all kinds of other infrastructure projects, broadband expansion, natural gas in rural and northern uh, Ontario. Uh, this is a concerted effort. It is my top priority as minister. And uh, you know we launched uh, this week the first part of that, which is the advertising campaign. You, you mentioned and I find this interesting, you mentioned elevator repair people. There is a lack of skilled tradespeople in that specific job. Why can't we get more people working in that job? Well, again, um, I think uh, there's a, a stigma around the trades uh, in general. Uh, we're not talking about this uh, uh, early enough in the education system. Uh, kids, um, unfortunately, uh, aren't being encouraged in some cases by parents out there. So this really is a concerted effort uh, across government. Uh, businesses have to do their part. Uh, my friends in the labor uh, union movement have to do their part, as well as uh, the non-union uh, sector in Ontario to really promote this as a viable career option. Monty, great to see you again. Thanks for coming on the program. Thanks, Alan. That is Monty McNaughton speaking with me on Focus Ontario. You can watch that episode of Focus Ontario on Saturday at 5.30 on Global News and then again Sunday at 11.30 in the morning. Welcome back to the program. Some sad news in the world of politics in Newfoundland Labrador's John Crosby, an outspoken former federal cabinet minister, has passed away. 
His family confirming he died this morning following a period of declining health. John Crosby was 88. Now, he was known as much for his sharp wit as for his politics. He ran for the party's leadership in 1983, but since he didn't speak French, he really couldn't gain momentum, and he lost to Brian Mulroney. He later served as fisheries minister in Mulroney's cabinet. Perhaps what he's best remembered for was a bit of a quip that got him into some trouble back in 1990. This is the audio of that. During a fundraiser in Victoria, B.C., he was talking about Liberal MP Sheila Copps when he said Ms. Copps made him think of these song lyrics. I don't know whether you've ever heard this old song. It was, pass me the tequila, Sheila, and lie down and love me again. I don't know how. (laughs) Now, this is just a song. It hasn't happened. That is the quip from 1990, the very famous Pass Me the Tequila Sheila. Now that sexist quip was caught on camera. Crosby later acknowledged the comment was, quote, ill-considered, unquote. And I play it and ask you this question. If we were to take that incident and move it to today... It obviously, it riled some people up and made people angry in 1990, but in 2019, if you make that kind of joke, can you survive as a politician? I think the answer is no. I think times have changed somewhat, but I think the public are less forgiving. Cancel culture out there would say, no, that kind of thing will not be allowed to stand. Of course, I say that. And then I think of Donald Trump. And not all the rules apply, I suppose. John Crosby, gone at 88. Let's talk about what's coming down the pipe weather-wise. You may have heard of this in the news. but Storms are coming. Yes, a storm is indeed a coming. There is a flood warning for the greater Toronto area. A soaking weekend anticipated right across the GTA. Environment Canada saying that light drizzle beginning Friday morning is expecting to gain strength heading into Saturday. Thank you. Thank you. And taper off through Sunday. Who's got to go to the bathroom? Everybody. Every dude over 50 is like, I got to pee now. Uh, Total rainfall amounts of 25 to 50 millimeters. Wind gusts up to 90 kilometers an hour are possible. Areas farther from Lake Ontario are expected to see freezing rain that may last for several hours. Here is our Global News Chief Meteorologist Anthony Farnell, who says confidence is increasing on a major ice storm for locations north and west of the GTA and other parts of Ontario. Once you get up towards the Halton Hills area, I'm a bit more concerned for freezing rain late Saturday into the night. Even Guelph, Kitchener, Waterloo, and they may see 15 to 20 millimeters of uh, ice accretion, and and that's going to cause some some big problems for trees and, and the power grid as well. Ice accretion. Am I right? Ice secretion. When you work as a meteorologist, you get to say all of these cool things, and then you just you just say them like with a straight face, like, "Well, what? It ain't no thing. I know thing. Grapple? I got the. Who's got the grapple? Farnell loves that word. It's grapple. I don't even know what that is. Secretion.
Welcome back to the program. Let's get to that Royal Rift, shall we, and more developments uh, from Buckingham Palace, where royal sources say Queen Elizabeth is leading four-way talks with Prince Charles, William, and Harry after Harry and Meghan declared this week publicly that they were going to, quote, step back from their royals, their roles with the royal family. Here's reporter James Longman. The Duchess of Sussex is back in Canada after she and Harry dropped their royal pullback bombshell. Baby Archie had remained there while his parents came to London for an appearance. Now Harry still in the UK, the Queen and three princes looking to find a workable solution. That's right. Archie is still here. Archie, no, Archie's staying here where he's safe in Canada. Meghan is back. And of course, it sounds like the Queen is ticked. More and more reporting is that the Queen had urged Harry not to publicly announce this step back until the family had figured it all out. And then Harry and Meghan said no and gave basically gave Charles and the Queen about a 10-minute heads up that this thing was about to drop on Instagram. Hey, wait a second. Who pays the tab for Harry and Meghan after all? The Queen had a series of conference calls to find the best solution for the complicated issues, including questions about who will foot the bill for the couple's cost of living. Police protection, travel, even their home in Windsor are all costs currently picked up by British taxpayers. And I'll tell you something for free, that cost had best not be passed on to Canadians. I'll tell you what. The other thing I love is this thing that was trending yesterday, because let's make Harry the governor general. There's a couple of problems with that. One, he's not a Canadian citizen, and generally we like Canadians to be the governor general. It's been that way uh, for about, I don't know, 60, 70 years. And the other thing is, is that the governor general is the queen's representative in Canada. And right now, he's not getting along so well with grandma. So that could be awkward. Laura Hensley is our regular Friday contributor with everything pop culture related, and she joins me in studio now. Hi. Hey, Alan. You love this story? I can't get enough. Can't get enough. No. Me either. It's like every single time you think Meghan Markle and Prince Harry can do something outrageous, they one-up themselves. And I think the fact that now they're probably going to be spending half their time in Canada, I have an even deeper vested interest in what they're doing. Sheba Siddiqui is my producer and often weighs in whenever Meghan Markle comes up. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, you, you think Meghan should, Meghan and Harry should make a permanent home here in Canada? I think they're going to. I, I don't even think it's half the time as what the, as what they said in their statement. I think that they're moving here permanently. They might make some couple of visits here and there to go see Grandma, but they're coming to Canada. Do you think that uh, Harry knows what a Canadian tuxedo is, by the way? Could we get him like a, you know, does I, well, everybody he's know here that? often. And come on, his, his, when she was his girlfriend, he was here all the time. So, so. you think he has matching denim top and bottoms? I, I think he looked great in it. All right. <laughs> Let's talk about Megan herself, because I don't know if we really in Canada uh, appreciate the, the level of dislike in the UK and the way the UK press treats Megan. Give me a sense of that, of what you know of it, Laura. Well, I think that the tabloids in particular were really, really hard on Meghan. There was racist comments. They were constantly chasing her and Harry. And for Harry, who lost his mother because of being chased by a paparazzi, you know, he has a really fear, deep fear that the same fate could happen to Meghan. So I think Meghan had a really hard time in the public eye. And she said this, you know, 
Harry and Meghan have sued tabloids. They've asked for privacy. They released a statement in their documentary saying it was really hard for them and they wanted to have a bit more of a stepped out of the spotlight role. And the British press just didn't give it to them. So I don't really think it's that shocking that all of a sudden they want to get out of there and come to a place that perhaps won't follow them as much. But Sheba, that's not going to happen. It doesn't matter where. They can't go anywhere. It doesn't matter where they go in the world. The, the press, whether it's Canadian press or British press or, or just, you know, anybody, royals, lovers, they're going to be followed everywhere. I think they're aware of that. And I suspect that Megan has a plan. I mean, so far, well, the way that she's been living her life, I don't, this wasn't overnight. She's been planning this. Harry brought home his black girlfriend and there was a huge outrage across England for this. So, I mean, she knew what she was getting into. And I think that she... She's not one to take anything lying down. The abuse she's gotten, the reports that have been made about her, about her mother being, you know, a drug addicted uh, crackhead in in the United States when she's actually, you know, a master's educated yoga instructor and certified therapist. I mean, the racism has been there from day one, and Megan's out, and I don't blame her. I, I love the comment about bringing home your black girlfriend. I get a feeling that she just maybe just now has watched the film Get Out. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm yes. saying? Yes. She, she watched just, Get Out over the watched, holidays. She watched Get Out. She was on Vancouver Island. It was a bit stormy. <laughs> what, do you want, what do you want to watch? She wants to watch Get Out. And I'm like, oh my. Uh-oh. That was my favorite tweet this week. <laughs> yes. Yes. The movie poster recreated. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> she finally watched Get Out. She finally watched Get Out. <laughs> How does this play out from here, Laura? Well, I think the fact that they have said they want to cut off taking money from British taxpayers basically signifies that they're not going to have official roles in England anymore. I think they want to really reduce the amount of work they do for the royal family. They also said that they want to become financially independent. What does that mean? I mean, that's the burning question. They already have a lot of money, but what's really interesting to me is that last June they applied for a trademark application on a bunch of products, which was hoodies, socks, textbooks, bookmarks. So they might have been thinking, hey, we want to get out of this family. How are we going to make some money? You know, they said they want to have their own charity venture. They probably could get really great book deals. You know, they're thinking from a business perspective, they're going to get money, and I'm not exactly sure how, but I'm sure they've thought about this pretty thoroughly. Some of that Kardashian cash coming their way as oh, influencers. No, no. But different category. Come on, we can't what, put them in the same no, it's category. The same, but no, how is it? It's the totally the same. No. You know? It's no. whatever she wears. Like she's going to be whatever. She's going to be out there, you know, with some sort of juice cleanse next month. She no. Oh my God, Alan, you're hurting me. Come on, this is Megan. This is not. There's no juice cleanse going on here. She's a. She was in. She was an. She's an actor in Hollywood. She has made a name for herself, not off of reality TV, not off of whatever who she's, she's just she's, that is no different it's no, no that uh, what you're saying that's, Laura, is that's exactly what they, they're planning well i think they'll be very strategic with their brand partnerships we know that charity work is very important to them and so because megan markle had her own lifestyle blog before right she's involved in that world she had a the brand tank. partnership with reitman's she's very strategic in who she works with so i do think she'll do brand partnerships but i don't think she'll be promoting any tummy tuck tea like the kardashians will <laughs> <laughs> she might have and, different uh, have you heard that Andy Cohen reached out and has offered her position uh, as a real housewife of Beverly Hills. Her I and Harry. That. I would yeah. totally watch. Oh, that. I would tune in. Yes, I never watched the <laughs> well, show. Well, at home she with Harry never. and Megan, that would that would be a reality TV show that both of you would tune into. <laughs> oh, you would come on, Alan. Yeah. So, yeah, I, why is it that you're such big fans? I, I don't. I don't mean to you know disagree, but I just want to understand what is it that attracts you to Meghan Markle as a character, as as a person to follow. What is that? 
I personally really like the fact that she's sort of sticking her middle finger up to the royal family. She yeah. has tried, from what I can see in the press, to make amends and to be kind and to follow their rules. And it's been nothing but challenging for her. And she hasn't been welcomed. And I think she's finally stepping back and saying, hey, I am a mother. I'm a wife. I'm a person. I deserve respect. And I'm going to do things on my own terms. And I really respect that. She's handled herself with nothing but grace and dignity with these in-laws who have just railroaded her. And it's just, you have to respect that. And it's a lesson for for every woman out there. Yeah. Anybody who's got trouble with the in-laws. Are exactly. your in-laws listening to the radio right now, Shiba, by Mine, the way? I have no idea, but my in-laws are great, really. <laughs> you know what? You know what the rule is? I didn't marry the, the eldest son. Never marry the eldest son, because there's so much pressure put on, even though really? Megan didn't either. Oh, yeah, you run. I married, like, the, the middle child out of mm-hmm. five. Nobody cares about him, so we get away with everything. Man, I'm the eldest son. Nobody tell my wife. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to some other pop culture. Thank you, Shiba. Appreciate you being here. Let's talk about uh, Justin Bieber saying, he has Lyme disease and now, of course, drawing a, joins a growing number of other celebrities who have opened up about having Lyme disease. Justin Bieber, you know, he posted on social media the other day that the reason he's been stepping out of the spotlight and looking sick is because he's secretly been battling Lyme disease. And this is something that we're going to see a lot more in his YouTube documentary series, which is coming out in a couple of weeks. But I think Justin just really wants to tell people more about the disease. And we know that other celebrities like Avril Lavigne has it, Bella Hadid, Gigi Hadid, Yolanda Hadid, the whole Hadid clan. They've been very vocal about raising awareness around this. And I was a little surprised to hear that Justin's been battling this too. Is it is it unfairly targeting celebrities, this disease? What is going on? You know what? I don't know. The fact that it comes from a tick bite terrifies me. I mean, I guess a lot of these celebrities live in California where the weather is different. They're probably outside a lot more in nature. <laughs> what are you talking about? Celebrities are outside in the nature more than regular yeah, people? I think so. Hiking what? in California. That's what I would do if I lived there. Was it just hanging out with deer ticks? I it's don't know. The warm, Hadid Alan. might be. I don't, I don't know. But uh, let's move on. You got any Lizzo for me? I asked for some Lizzo. I, lo- I think this is probably my favorite record from last year. Oh, thank you. Thank you for getting me fired. Uh, Jillian Michaels has criticized Lizzo. <laughs> don't play anymore, Lizzo. Uh, what did she say and what's the uh, backlash been? So Jillian Michaels has been making fun of Lizzo's body shape and she's basically said what? that well she should she she was on a BuzzFeed panel or sorry a BuzzFeed interview and she said that you know Lizzo's music is great I love her music she's you know really talented but we shouldn't be celebrating her body because if she gets diabetes there will be nothing to celebrate like, about come that Come on can we cancel culture her Jillian Michaels? I think a lot of people have, and they're ready to if they haven't already. I mean, Jillian Michaels was on The Biggest Loser, and she was criticized for these really horrible tactics and making people feel so bad about their bodies. And people on social media are coming out and saying, Jillian, you don't know anything about Lizzo's health. Why are you commenting at all? Not to mention, it's it's just funky. That's all there is. Uh, let's move on to social media experiments. This one I like. A Japanese billionaire is giving away millions to Twitter followers. What's this story? So a Japanese billionaire is doing just that. He has tweeted that he's going to give $9 million out to 1,000 people on Twitter to see if it'll improve their happiness. So this is a very expensive social experiment. So basically anyone could enter in this contest. You just had to retweet his tweet. And then they were going to randomly select the 1,000 people. So he did this a year ago as well. And the whole purpose of this experiment is to say, okay, if I give you this money, does it improve your quality of life? 
life? Are you happier? So he really wants to follow these people <laughs> and see if that portion of money has significantly improved their well-being. I'm just going to ask you, if that cash came your way, do you think you would be happier? I mean, I think any amount of money could be used to make you happier, but it just determines how happy you are in the first place. I think I would put that money towards, you know, I'm getting married in the summer, and so that's costing me a lot of money. Are you marrying the middle child? I'm marrying the eldest, which now I'm reconsidering. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Uh, Laura. Appreciate you being with us. Stick with us here because I got one more. It has been a long and difficult week in this country, so let's finish off with this. This is how not to call a basketball game. This is note to future broadcasters. An on-air tribute to a dead pet is not a good time to get fired up over a crazy dunk. This is a clip from a high school basketball game in Minnesota where one announcer reveals that his dog has recently died after being run over by a car, and then listen to what happens. Well, and then there's one more, the, gone. There's yes, one more yes. gone, but not forgotten, and that's uh, our sweet Daisy or our sweet Lucy. Uh, at the age of 12, she was run over oh, yes. in our driveway. Oh, oh, like that? Was she run over like? Was she run over like that? That after a thunderous dunk? <laughs> wow, that is how not to call a game. I hope you have yourself a great weekend. Stay dry, everybody, and join me tonight on Global News at 5.30 with my co-anchor Farah Nasser and our broadcast simulcast right on this radio station beginning at 6. Laura, always great to see you. Thanks, thanks for, for being here. Sheba, thanks for putting up with me for another week. Always. <laughs> <laughs> I have no we'll choice. See, exactly, exactly. We'll see you again on Monday, everybody.